everybody. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, and when I'm not doing this podcast, I'm probably writing about being outside or hopefully actually being outside. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach. And here on the Consummate Athlete, we look at different sports, different movement specialists, people who are moving. We have talked to people like yourself who hopefully move in all different types of ways or one way really well. And we just try and learn about movement and sport and life ultimately. Yeah. And for the first time in a while, we're actually both home to record this, which is very exciting. Yes. Very happy to be home to my espresso machine. I am slightly jittery this morning. Also to my wife. I was going to say. You picked the order. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the answer to that, so we'll just let that one go. Um, yeah, it was a, I've had a good week here by myself in Ontario. We had some gorgeous weather last week and then a solid few inches of snow over the weekend. So I had a very uh, pretty intense couple days of training in the snow, but all good. Yeah, that springtime struggle, right? It's real. It's rain. It's inclement weather. Uh, I saw in Moab, Utah, they had just crazy random snow. Tell you what, I got really grumpy because there's always that old saying, like, March comes in like a lion, out like a lamb. And I was like, it came in like a lion and out like a bigger lion. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just you think that's the lamb and it's not, right? It was not. It's a good life lesson, I suppose. Yep, yep. So got to be a consummate athlete the other day and shovel some snow right after my run. So well, I saw a lot of people were turning into, you know, they're out skiing or, you know, getting that last ski in. I saw hmm. a couple powder skis here in Ontario, which I think it's been a decent, like randomly good year for pow powder skiing in Ontario. Don't usually go together, but I saw someone shooting some powder on the weekend, which is pretty crazy. I think it only snowed because I put our skis away. Yeah, you were talking about that quite early. Um, what else? What else? We got the Shred Girl stuff. Any updates on book releases and parties and other things? Yeah, I mean, we're just a little over a month out, so people can still pre-order. That's always super helpful for for me, for the publisher. And, you know, the more pre-orders we get, the kind of more firepower they're going to put behind it. Right. Uh, which means, you know, hopefully there's going to be a lot of young girls around North America and hopefully worldwide that are, you know, going to get exposed to the book and pick up cycling, you know, so I didn't write these books really for just for cyclists. I wrote them hoping to get young girls that aren't in cycling to get into cycling. Sure, so. sure. And I, I use overuse the Babysitter's Club analogy, which works on about 50% of people, I know, maybe right? less, but... Uh, yeah, just like a, a book for young girls to read and hopefully enjoy. And if that gets them towards cycling, that's great. If it's just a, a if it gets them towards reading, that's great, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's shred-girls.com and there's links to Amazon. You can also find it just on Amazon, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we're also doing a few events. There's uh, the launch party is coming up in May. Yep, May 11th at Joyride 150 in Markham, Ontario. It's a big bike park and everyone's welcome, but all women get... $5, five dollar entry. There's going to be some draw prizes and such, um, and then a bit of skill instruction. We're going to have a few of the real life shred girls are there, so these are people you can see on shred-girls.com mm -hmm. uh, who are indeed real life people. Um, I, yeah. yeah, so lots of lots of exciting stuff going on with that. I'm actually working on kind of a, a secret like bonus for pretty much anyone who gets the first book. 
So that's that's in the works right now, and I'm pretty stoked on it. And already, if you pre-order and you email me, I'll send you stickers. So lots of lots of good stuff there. Um, yeah, and Peter, you just got back from Bear Mountain, the first Canada Cup of the season. Yeah, I've been on projects here. I, I, for some reason, going into this, like we do a pretty good job of planning, and ha- we both have our calendars, and we have a calendar together, and. Multiple. We might have too many calendars. I have a lot of calendars, and I, somehow in my head, I just did not process that I was going to be at ca- like camps with younger people for the better part of a month. Somehow, this didn't cross my mind that I was just going like, you know, a ten day camp and then another ten day camp with some travel on either side. And I'm not gonna feel bad for you because I came back from Girona after a two week camp. Yeah, that was a long was stretch too. Yeah. Home for forty so, I mean, hours. It was all good. It all went pretty well. Um, yeah, really. I mean, as much as like the young people sometimes are challenging, they're also very energetic and seeing them learn and get stuff. Like we had some certainly with Ellen's quest down in Tucson with 12 young girls. It was super. There's a lot of tears. I think I probably cried more than anyone. He really did. And but some really good breakthroughs. And then even this past week with uh, Ontario Cycling, we had, you know, some good breakthrough performances in the race we did. But we also did a bit of training ahead and a bit after and, you know, getting bunny hops is sort of my pet passion pet passion pet peeve not pet, a pet peeve pet project i don't know something i really like um and i do believe that that bunny hop is a, some like a gateway almost to like confidence in riding and then I, I i like to think it extrapolates to life but that might be a bit of a jump but a canadian olympian rafael gagne agreed with you on the twitters the other day so yeah raf and i got out the day after the race. he had raced um and did had a great race actually uh, but we got out and hiked the mountain together and talked about all sorts of life things and how it came back to bikes ultimately but i feel like we've been having a lot of like existential crisis of man kind of conversations lately i don't know if that comes with hanging out with the youth or <laughs> i was trying to explain like 1984 the book uh which is dear to my heart given that's my birth year but um also i guess current times maybe i don't know um but anyhow yeah a lot of i guess they don't read them as much anymore and i was like oh that was like those books were i felt well timed in high school right to because so much of it is existential dilemma of man and Mm -hmm. uh, questioning authority and right which is maybe that's why they stopped having them in high school they were like these kids get way too annoying in their senior year so i guess that's an aside in any case but what else do we have? Is that is that most of our updates, I think? I think um, that's, that's most of our updates. Yeah, I have a few clinics and stuff coming up in April and May, but we're still maybe a ways away from that. And you can watch, I mean, on the Smart Athlete newsletter, I put that out and then I try and post stuff as well on Smart Athlete. But yeah, nothing super urgent to post. All right. So let's let's dive into this week's questions. Yeah, some great ones. Uh, the first one I actually really like because it was perfectly timed. Uh, someone asked, oat milk, is it a thing? How did I not know about this? Um, so this is like a, a milk type beverage that's derived from oats. That... Yeah. So the, the funny thing is uh, someone asked this and I literally just spent three weeks researching all things plant substitute milk related for an article. So I'm very skilled at answering this question now. I actually had uh, last week's guest, Lori Netescu, uh, talk to me about different types of milk and what the deal is. And so, yes, oat milk is a thing. You make it by crazy soaking oats and then straining them out so you'd make it the same way you'd make an almond milk you'd you know put almonds and water in a food processor in this case you put oats and water in a food processor 
process it, let it sit for a bit, and then strain it with a cheesecloth, or you could just go buy oat milk. The thing is, when we say milk, it kind of doesn't mean the same thing as milk milk, like cow's milk, right? Like the nutrition profile for oat milk is almost entirely carbohydrate, super low calorie, no protein, no fat. Um, and if you're going to get oat milk from the store, it's going to have a ton of additives. It's going to have like xanthan gum or guar gum to like the thicken it. Yeah. And emulsifiers, I think. Yeah, yeah, to make it more milky, it'll probably be sweetened. Um, so just kind of exercise caution when using a milk substitute. It's not that they're bad. It's just that they're not going to give you the exact same thing that cow's milk is going to give you. Yeah, it's a tricky one, right? A lot of those. And that's why I always like emphasize type beverage because if you look like it's even like the almond milks and stuff and the coconut milks like there's actual coconut milk which is like in a can the like pureed coconut mm -hmm. um, and that stuff can certainly have emulsifiers and whatnot as well but you can get like basically like blended coconut yeah which would be like coconut milk from like curries and whatnot um, but then there's coconut milk beverage is the stuff in the cartons in the store and most of that stuff again because coconut milk tends to separate like peanut butter or anything like fat based right then they have to put these emulsifiers and thickeners and stuff mm -hmm. in and there's definitely like a subset of people that you know they think they think or actually have allergies to whatever your glutens your dairies your whatever and they get onto these like health health aisle type foods and then you end up with these foods that are heavily processed, really, mm -hmm. right? Like it's a milk type beverage that's, as you say, low calorie, but it's, you know, essentially maybe some added sugar or sweetener or flavorings, you know, f vanilla flavorings or what are the other words I'm trying to think of? But yeah, so it's not necessarily it's I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just something to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, especially if I think if you're replacing it and not like like there's no, the nutrients aren't coming from something else, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, like if you're not having your daily dose of sardines to get, you know, whatever, calcium and some fats and stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, then yeah. like dairy's fairly nutrient rich if you have a good source of dairy, right? But if you're replacing that dairy and calling it milk with, again, carrageenine. Yeah, both, so both, uh, <laughs> both Lori and uh, actually a guest we're going to have on in the next couple weeks, Matt Fitzgerald, who's also a nutrition expert, both of them were very quick to say milk is actually if we're going to talk about superfoods cow's milk actually kind of is if you look at the nutrient profile i think Lori said something to the effect of if she was going to be stranded on a desert island and could only have like one or two foods with her milk would actually be one of them because it has carbs fat protein good amount of like good vitamin profile calcium kind of a lot of the stuff that you do need and it's all in there naturally yeah, I think if you can get decent quality and, you know, a fuller fat and whatnot, and if it doesn't bug your stomach, there's definitely going to be some back and forth on, you know, people that can tolerate it or not. But mm -hmm. So all that to say, oat milk, totally a thing. Um, I would actually, I really think people should try making their own, honestly. Like, it's A, a crap load cheaper. Uh, B, you get oats out of it too, right? You can use, you can strain that. Yeah, I that. don't know. Is there, is there like usable at the end of it all? Yeah, it's you know? the same with almond milk. Like what I would do when I used to make my own almond milk is you strain out the milk into through a cheesecloth. You have your almond milk that you've made and then you have these just chopped up almonds that are wet, but you can use them and make a granola or whatever out of them. Hmm. So you can do the same with oats. Interesting. So it's sort of like uh, when you juice fruit or 
yeah, when you juice like vegetables or whatever, you can use that pulp and make breads and all kinds of stuff instead of just throwing it out. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that stuff like, you know, if you do oats and you're looking for like a low calorie way to, you know, if you're going to have what else, wait, maybe dollop in coffee. Or... I do find using oat milk for cereal yeah. to be kind of ironic. It does seem somewhat re- redundant. redundant. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, if you're just looking for like a milky type substance to put in some cereal or something and you don't want to consume dairy, like, I guess it's, it's definitely a thing. Or right? if you're home and you're out of milk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you have oatmeal. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's oat milk. Um, I'll, we, I probably won't have the article out by the time this episode goes live, but when we do get the article I have on different types of milk up, I'll make sure I add it to the show notes. Well, probably something it's on, do you know, can you say who is? Yeah, it'll be it? on outside. Oh, okay. So, I mean, if you do like Molly Herford outside milk, yeah, that should get you close. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. that's milk, milk type beverages. Yeah. There we go. All right. Next question. Um, Peter, this is definitely more for you because I am still a month out of this, but first races of the season, um, common mistakes that people are making in that first race back after a long off season winter away from racing. Yeah, it's tough, right? It, it depends a little bit. You know, I would refer the when Alan was on and she was talking about races that went well and not well. And we talked a lot in that period of time, but on that episode about, you know, the process goals and the results goals. I think sometimes we come into those first races with just like, you know, training's been going so well. Maybe you got a coach and your expectations so like get inflated. And I, maybe we don't say it to anyone else, but you know, we coming in and we're like hoping there's like this hope that we're going to be the world champion, but there's not any, right. Like it just isn't the logical progression of sort things. of side note. I feel like every time someone says that, where it's like, I want to come into this race and win, you have to kind of step back and assume that at least half of the other people in the race also are coming and thinking they're going to win. So someone's going to win. Yeah, but there's going to be a lot of people that had that internal goal of winning that aren't going to hit that. Yeah, yeah. So I think having like objectives for the race. So these are a process goals. So you want to make sure that you you know you've scheduled out your day twenty four hours beforehand. So meal wise, bike setup. So doing the things that are required by the winner of the race to do. A lot of times those get forgotten, and we don't look over our bike well. We don't do a good like opener workout. Um, sort of your pre-race workout we've done something odd we're up late so if you if you do want to win focusing on the things you can control is important and and those are the only things you can control as far as that at least in the week the days ahead of the race in the months ahead again training smart not cramming your training is going to help and training specifically for that race um we do, we're going to talk a bit about like transitioning from base to uh, race, base to build and race here in a second. So I'll leave that, that sort of transition for a bit. We'll come back to that. Um, but as far as mistakes, I, I would say, again, we're making sure that we're practicing. The big common ones are we haven't used sugar powders or whatever we're going to use in the race, the gels, and we end up with gut rot. Well, especially if you have a new sponsor for your team, whether it's a club team, whether it's a pro team, whatever, a lot of them switch sponsors throughout the year. So now you've gone from, say, Cliff to Goo, and there's nothing wrong with either of those companies. But if you just got your swag bag of new products or whatever right before, you know, the week before the race and you haven't gotten a chance to test them out, 
you know, you might want to stick to last year's stuff for the first race and give yourself a chance to get used to the new stuff. And it's always rushed in the, the spring for Canada, for sure. Like we barely get on mountain bikes or even outside sometimes before yeah. the race, right? And so I think just that first race ideally is not your A race. We ideally, again, when we're th thinking about the people that win the race that matters, there's usually races ahead of that in the weeks ahead. So here we might have some like spring gravel grinders. We call them like spring classics. You know, those are in a lot of areas. And those races, again, try hard, do the things that it takes to, to quote unquote win, whatever your win is. But the outcome you're less tied to, right? So we have this gravel grinder. It's point to point. I often do it in the spring. I really just want to get in and work hard for two hours. And if I, I'm often close to the front, I've never won it, but I would love to. But I also don't, I'm not that invested in it. Half the time I decide like weeks maybe out. Um, and it's just really, it's that hard workout in the race, starting the race, getting that stupid start out of the way that we all hate. So that then the next week or two later, when I go to the first whatever provincial race or whatever, that then I've already done the start. Mm -hmm. I've already done the routine. I've already worked hard for two hours. I remember what it's like to breathe hard and like be pushed to try and hold onto a wheel. And then I'm hopefully more confident going into that race that matters more. And I think the results, even if you look at the results from the Bear Mountain Canada Cup this past weekend, bears that out. If you look at who won, they were people who've already been racing this season. Mm -hmm. Well, like second through fifth were the people who kind of were opening their season with this race. Yeah, there's always that like kick in the pants that you realize it's way harder than you remember. We sort of forget, right? And, and that was definitely in the athletes we had in our camp. And these are all younger athletes, like under in their 20s or teens. Um, the ones that had been at the races previously said the same thing. And we tried to point this out throughout the week that the first race was not their best. Some did okay, but not their best. Second race was better. And then this latest race, they actually were, you know, more up where they might have expected to be, right? Mm -hmm. And there's factors with that, but a lot of it is just getting back in, right? And, and it's that specificity of training we talk about where the most specific thing is racing. You can't do that year round and expect to be fit, but. At some point, you need to practice that thing, the specific thing, right? And that's your B's and C races. We sometimes call that or the lower priority races, right? And that could be if there isn't a race for you, that could be a very specific trainer workout, an indoor workout, or just a workout that's pretty hard, right? Sort of simulates in some visualizations and practicing your routines just to try and get some of that feeling of going hard a group ride might be a good way to get people and get pushed out of your comfort level totally i think the last thing on uh cycling races specifically is for the love of god if your gear has only been on the trainer or you have a new bike for this race right. uh let's let's tighten our bolts let's make sure our bikes are working and if you have di2 i highly yeah. recommend charging it yeah and again it's that process right like what would the winner of the race be doing and then like it's the fake it till you make it if you like right like the winner of the race probably charged their batteries and has their tire pressure and got their bike looked over and so doing the best you can to act like the the winner of the race right and, our, and again everyone's win is different it's not that you're first place but your best race comes from that process mm -hmm. oh and last one is uh in this you know it's still april it's gonna be may 
there's still a chance it's going to be really freaking cold at the start of your race. So remember to dress appropriately. Like you might be racing in a skin suit, but this is probably the time to make sure you've got your jacket and stuff to do your warm ups and head to the start line and stuff. I've already been thinking my race is my first race of the season is in a month. And I was already thinking yesterday, oh man, I need to remember to bring a, my pair of like zip off pants so I can pull them off at the start and hand them to my dad. Cause I'm going to mm-hmm. race in shorts. And that's when I say visualizations, right? Like thinking through the scenarios, right? Like, um, the weather is one. So are you set up? Like even like I would say, I said to the kids, some of them didn't bring, uh, leg warmers. And I was like, and they're, and it's like, okay, yeah, for sure. Like the climate in this area would suggest you don't generally need them. But like, I would say always you have those because you never know about cold mornings, rainstorms. Again, it snowed at this Moab race, which I think is irregular. Um, yeah, everybody so at Moab know. was racing in leg warmers, which is kind of crazy. To race in leg warmers for sure. Also, yeah. real talk, I ran in knee warmers under leggings the other day because I had packed away a lot of my fleecy leggings. Right. Because weather was beautiful all week, did not expect random 10 inches of snow. And Sunday rolled around and my one pair of fleece leggings I left out were dirty. So I had to run in my Rafa leggings with leg- or with knee warmers under them. Did not work super well, but my knees stayed warm. So It's a good strategy. Yeah. For sure. And I mean, sometimes having those pieces, right? You can definitely repurpose. I remember one of my first races I didn't. This is like super early. I was super young and we went to a spring race expecting it to be amazingly warm. You know, it was biking. All we knew about biking was it was in warm weather. So we went and I remember we had like baseball socks in the car randomly because I was still playing baseball. And so I remember cutting the baseball socks and making like, I guess they were essentially knee warmers. I'm sure it was. I wish I had a photo, but I don't. Um, and, And so, I mean, you learn those lessons once and then, you know, you go out and you get your your leg warmers or your whatever your clothing you need i always tell the story of my first ever bike ride with the rucker cycling team i showed up in leggings like not cycling tights like straight up leggings with normal underwear i knew nothing about biking a sweatshirt it was january like really thin gloves and i remember i was so cold halfway through the ride we had to stop and one of the guys had to give me his jacket one guy had to like take off his shoe covers and put them on my feet like i was a wreck um so for newer cyclists, you know, I admit it's kind of hard to have all the gear you need, especially, you know, if you've been riding indoors all winter and you're gearing up for your first race ever. Um, but yeah, you can repurpose a lot of stuff. Yeah. And Cross I think, country ski gear is great for cycling. Yeah. And, and they definitely go back and forth, right? Like the cross country skiers will sometimes pick on the cyclists for wearing their cycling stuff. But I mean, a lot of it does transfer over pretty well. Um, and I think there's, there's two notes I have. So one, you're visualizing also the start. A lot of us, and I'm guilty of this. Like I picture myself on the start line or sorry, like on the front line of the race. The reality is a lot of us will not be, especially at some of these spring races that are like bigger mass starts. Running races are often like this. So you have to be ready that you're not going to be the one like flying off the start line. You're going to have to ease into it. You're going to have to deal with traffic. So again, being ready for this, both in a skill perspective, maybe riding in a group or with friends so that you're ready to be like really close to people. Again, makes that start line less nerve wracking. Um, And then also just like you don't get to the start line and just immediately like we haven't even started the race and you've already counted. Oh, I'm never going to win. I'm never going to have my win again. That might not be first place because of my start position, because of 
the situation I was not visualizing that I was not prepared for. So a big part of that visualization or mental training or, or preparation is, is thinking through those scenarios. What happens when I just didn't get to the start line on time, something went awry and I'm at the back. How do I deal with this scenario now to have my best day? Um, and what was my other concept? Oh, spring races. We were talking a lot about weather and I've actually had a few clients for a variety of reasons. Some of it's easing back after injury or time off or whatever. They've come to me, you know, a little demotivated or overtrained or, you know, again, injured. You don't necessarily have to start the year with races super early. At some point you need to start. If you're going to race, you need to start, but you could get into the season, especially if weather's been an issue, you live in a snowy climate you might wait till later in the year where you've gotten more outside training, right? You're used to the heat. The weather isn't as issue as big an issue. So then it's not quite as stressful as far as, you know, a lot of things we're talking about is stressful and first races. I haven't been outside. Well, you can eliminate a lot of that if you just wait till May or June, whatever your climate dictates. Right. So sometimes we rush to get to those first races, but yeah, it's funny. And I mean, I, maybe this is just, I didn't pay attention to this much racing when I was, in my early days, but it does feel like every year the season starts earlier and earlier and earlier. Yep. Yep. For sure. And you can wait, right. And it's, you don't have to race constantly. No. And I mean, really, you're going to see a lot of people that are kind of going really hard in this first month, sort of start fading a little bit come June. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'm in a different role in some ways, but I don't know how many I raced last year. I think it was like seven, maybe total races and you came back and you won provincial i won the provincial world championships <laughs> end of the season held that form and motivation we'll anyhow see. we'll see if you can do it again this year yeah let's go to the next one. next next question um i really like this one so we're in april and someone asks i'm already feeling burnt out having indoor trainer blahs and just wondering when to take a break if you're just not feeling it? And I think this is a super good question because I mean, we all feel this to certain extents, especially, I'm gonna say, especially when the weather is doing this like up, down, up, down, it's very easy to feel super motivated one day and then just absolutely like devastated the next day. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, there can be a variety of things. I think that with the the online computer programs and even just being indoors right like it does lend itself to that intensity based thing so whether it's the indoor group rides or posting your numbers on social media or just your time crunch so you have to do intervals and high intensity this and that all the time like there's the common wisdom which has good support behind it that you can just only use intensity so much um and at some point it will catch up right like mm -hmm. you, and so some of that motivation is like you just can only beat yourself up so often so a lot of times when i see that in people it's that every day is like pushing that limit versus putting in the time right and, and some of those workouts are going to feel i saw a good analogy it was like a sandcastle like we're building a sandcastle that's your fitness that's you know the athlete you're becoming the person you're becoming but each of those little sand crystals are meaningless. You don't even see a lot of the the sand like as it drops onto the sand castle. Also, a tidal wave or just like a total dick on the beach could just come over and knock it down at any time. I guess there is that side to the analogy. Um, <laughs> let's assume our sand castle is great and big, but 
Um, I feel like a regular castle with bricks would have been maybe the better analogy. Uh, bricks are more sizable, like the sand, like each one. So, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, just do 30 minutes, light and easy. Just put it in the bank. Today, tomorrow, you'll probably feel better and ready to go. I think it's a good rule to try and do something, but just keep it low and easy. And again, put a little sand crystal onto your, your sand castle. Um, I'm also actually going to make kind of the opposite argument for doing nothing some days. I think that's been actually a huge change for me is my coach has me taking two days a week off, which is mm-hmm. I haven't taken two days a week off in 10 years. Well, and that's, again, that's the, there needs to be variety, right? And often we have like that hour a day. We all use our hour a day. It's the mental break. It's, you know, whatever. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, But there's definitely that, like, I need to go hard. And it it sounds odd, like, oh, no, no one does that. But I think if a lot of us look, it might not even be hard, but it might be like you say, you're doing something maybe at a moderate pace, Mm -hmm. but maybe just something every day versus maybe you do two off days and then use that extra time and you can maybe negotiate with family slash work slash whatever to get a longer workout on a Wednesday or a Sunday. Yeah. And I can't believe how much better my motivation has been having like true yeah. off days. Yeah. Um, I'm much happier going back to running the next day. And I think too, like for skilled people or not even skilled, I shouldn't necessarily say skilled, but experienced people who have done some element of endurance training for a matter of years, like you do get into that trap where the intensity becomes very important but that doesn't mean that every day is intense. It means that you have to give yourself a fairly significantly hard workout. Um, and to do that, you need significant recovery and motivation. And so like I found myself last year, there's a lot of weeks I got one good workout in and then maybe a, a decent endurance workout. But there was a lot of days of like 90 minutes, put it in the bank, 90 minutes, put it in the bank, nothing fancy, no crazy wattages, just 90 minutes in the bank. And so my frequency was good. Uh, Volume was, I would say, on the moderate side of what you would expect for someone who pretends to race elite still. Um, But then intensity would even be on the lower side. And I think it's just, but I had one really good as a minimum, some weeks too, like maybe the average was like 1.25 or something. Um, But I found that way, like just I was like crushing one day a week. And motivation, like you say, was really high, but... Side note, we have a psychologist on in an upcoming episode, and she's actually been listening to the podcast. One day, I would love to have her just come on and be like, so when you said this thing, just when you mentioned pretending to race elite, I now now that I know she listens, I'm like, oh God, what would she, what would she say about that? So I'm now hearing all of this through the lens well, you of... Could a... Certainly, I never actually committed. That's the... That's what it was. Yep. There we go. <laughs> she also says you might not be ready to get a dog, which I'm really sad about. She's good. <laughs> um, okay. Is that all we have on this? I think that's all we have on that. But that leads us very neatly into kind of this next topic of, okay, so most people, if you're following kind of a traditional build into race season, you've recently shifted from or are about to shift from your base miles into adding more intensity. Right. Um, And we've talked about, we think there's kind of two ways that people end up messing up here. And the first is we just never shift back to intensity. Um, Turns out base miles are actually pretty fun for a lot of people. Like it's, you know, pretty relaxing. It's 
not the hardest thing. It feels really good when you've nailed like a six hour ride or whatever. You feel super fit doing that, but you're not really getting any of the top end. And then the flip side is, okay, the intensity switch is, is on and it's on, on. So you have people going out and going super hard kind of right off the bat. Yeah. So how do we avoid... We've talked a little bit in the past about, so there's your base and build and that sort of linear periodization um, in that it progresses towards a goal. And usually that typically, traditionally, that would go from endurance training, maybe some tempo middle ground training to like some more anaerobic type training, just using sort of broad terms uh, as you got closer to the race. Um, If you could step back from that, more like cycling uh, type analogy and running uses those terms a little bit as well. But if you think more of like general preparation and then you have your specific preparation and maybe you have like competition period, um, those are sort of just three phases of the year and you maybe do general preparation for a bunch of months, your winter months, and then you get into the spring. There's maybe a more specific, you know, what we might call build phase where you're maybe if you're a mountain biker or a trail runner you're doing that more often there's maybe more intensity in there there's some like early races in there so again we're getting more specific and then you have your competition phase where you've stopped a lot of the volume you're not training maybe as long uh, but again very specific training there's a lot of recovery and then there's more races during the competition period and that competition period in traditional periodization um, would not be super long, maybe like a four to six weeks, uh, if I recall right. Um, you can't really hold that quote unquote peak or that peak form, that competition phase, because you're not training a lot. The volume's dropping, the load's dropping, right? And so that's, I think, the way you want to think about it is general preparation, we're increasing the load. Maybe coming into the, the build or the specific phase, we're sort of holding that load or increasing the intensity, and then we're getting to competition phase, then you are who you are and you're just trying to sharpen the saw, right? Get ready for race, keep it really specific, recover between races. Um, so the question that you asked was? How do we avoid kind of hurting ourselves with our intensity? How do we get into intensity from base training in a smart, intelligent way? Yeah, yeah. and so that's, I think, where it gets tricky, right? And I think that's what we've talked about before is a lot of us aren't doing traditional periodization. You're not you talked about six hour like workouts like that's not real life right um so a lot of times what happens is we run out of volume in the base phase you can't increase past your eight hours a week that you're allowed we each get our hour a day maybe a little bit more on the weekend maybe less maybe more but that's plus or minus most of the people i would work with so what do you do so then in the past podcast we should reference this in the show notes i will try to find that q a Um, you end up putting intensity in because you want to keep the load building, right? So what I think a lot of people end up doing more of is non-linear periodization or block periodization where you're sort of maybe do a threshold block in the middle of the winter or you're doing some sweet spot training like we've had Frank Overton on talking about or some tempo like Steve Neal's been on talking about and you're just trying to increase the load. And we've, as in our last question, we talked about Some days are easy, some days are harder, and that could be, again, tempo, sweet spot, whatever. And in the general prep period, we were maybe cross-training and strength training more, and then once we get outside, we're making it more specific. So really what we're trying to do for most people, if we ignore that traditional periodization where we've gone volume, 
is we're trying to get more specific. So once you can ride outside or run outside or whatever your sport is, you should do that. And just by doing that, I would expect that things become more specific. And in that, if you're running off-road, running uphill, riding off-road, whatever, racing a bit, weekly races, you're going to have an intensified training plan. Um, and so really, that's what's going to happen. Again, if you take a couple of rest days, have a couple long, easy days, steady days, and then you have your one or two intensity days, I think it's hard to screw it up. I think the only way people screw it up is, I mean, doing intensity every day or doing just huge, like... Yeah, you got to progress it for sure. Yeah. So instead of going straight into like 15 two-minute intervals, maybe start with five. Yeah, and I guess a good analogy is I had a client just before we did this emailed and he said, oh, it looks like, you know, are we switching now to build? And he really likes like the terms and he's, you know, reads the books. And so it's really fun talking to him because he asks good questions. Um, and I said, yes, it's true. But because his goal races, he was a little concerned because his goal, main goal race is in July, but he also has May races that are important. So you get into this, like every race is important, but I have this one I want to do well in. So I said, yes, but we're going to use April and May to continue to build volume. So you could argue that like, yes, we're getting more specific. Yes. That we're now threshold instead of maybe tempo sweet spot, but we're also increasing load and volume still. So to me, that still sounds a little bit more like a base three, maybe early build one, but you're still building volume. So for him and a lot of people, we're trying to increase fitness still. And then in maybe May, June, we'll we'll get even more specific, more intense and try and race a bit more. And then towards that July peak, that race phase, which for a lot of us, again, if we want to just finish off with that competition phase for the working class person, the eight hour a week, my belief is that, that that peak comes a lot more from the off-bike things. And hopefully we're planning so that in July for this client, you know, maybe they can get a week off work. Mm-hmm. Maybe a week's a lot, but some people, if this is their big, you know, Leadville-type race, you know, their really big race, if you can get away, sleep extra, you know, maybe if you have family, you're away from your family, which sounds harsh, but you're away so you're just like a hermit basically you ride once a day you get a nap in who uses the phrase monk mode was that frank i think that's a frank thing i think but yeah maybe frank overton yeah and yeah so that's that's the working person's peak is really just trying to eliminate some of that life stress sleep extra extra good so that you have extra extra good sharpening like peak workouts once or twice a week And then that race, you're just so rested and ready and not beat up from life and, you know, the daily grind that you're good to go. And that might be a lot of people. It's like they get a Friday off before a Sunday race. So they get Friday. They can go pre-ride easily. You know, it's not a big rush day. Saturday is low key. Sunday they have the race and hopefully the training and stuff's undulated in such a way. The specificity, they've seen the course maybe a couple extra times. Um, so the preparation is just more specific. And I think for a lot of us, that's, that's what an A race is, is a little bit extra recovery from life, little on the workout side is being specific, a little bit more preparation. Um, and, and that would be how that, that competition phase would go. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, is that, is that enough on, on how we're looking at intensity? I think so. I mean, I think it's just a tricky thing. Cause, I mean, as you said, you're, you're dealing with people who aren't doing this as full-time jobs so you're 
Yeah. You probably never did a true like base, base, base phase. Yeah. And I think that's why I like to keep, and, and this is not me. This is like Joe Friel talks about this too. The time crunch cyclist talks about it in a slightly different way, but similarly, like, you don't want to stray. This is a coach Clance who we haven't had on, but he's super smart uh, strength coach. He says, you never stray too far from the intensity. Um, so I, I like to, and I'm trying to think there's all sorts Steve always talked about, like, you got to like kids walking across grass like to cut the corner at university. I don't know why that was the analogy, but like you want to keep, like if you just keep walking the path on grass, it'll, it'll like stay beat down. Right. But if people don't walk that path, right. So if you only did only volume, only endurance, you would, and then you tried to do intensity, like you can't even find the path. But if you've been like keeping that beat down, right. Mm -hmm. Dan Pruell, who was our national coach here in Canada, he talks about, keeping top spinning and you just got to keep the top spinning and it doesn't take much to keep it going, but you just need to like touch that and keep it going. Right. So you have like your different intensities or different training aspects and you want to just keep those tops spinning. Um, And I think that's in the base phase, you're keeping some sprints in maybe like the odd, like, you know, two, four minute hills that aren't your best. You just sort of like hit that intensity. It's not a full workout. And then as you come into that first those first workouts just they don't have to be crazy right like it can be bottom of the zone it can be like on the low end of the rep scheme so that you can come back right sometimes we all come out in like you know the hardest five by four minutes like of your life and you're just like debilitated after this workout right and i think that's a mistake is again ease into it so if you're starting build one and you're going to do vo2 intervals two in the week and just make sure the first week isn't crazy and get them in right again they're just crystals in your sandcastle nice tie back there yeah Yeah, i mean that was at least five different analogies yeah apologies for the metaphors guys (laughs) Um, all right last question here is back to sports nutrition this is around carbohydrate um so for on the bike or honestly this applies to on the run nutrition as well so uh, for endurance nutrition, let's say, how is there such a wide range for the recommended amount of carbs per hour? Uh, 30 to 40 grams seems to be the common figure, but hearing it as high as 100 grams per hour. Um, so I think the first thing I'll say is I actually, I haven't ever seen as low as 30 to 40 grams. Um, and I'm sure there are some sources that would say that, but that would only be around like 120 to 150 calories an hour. And Usually when we talk about carbs per hour, it tends to be two to 400 calories worth of carbs per hour, um, which is still a huge range. Um, if you're just kind of thinking about that as just kind of a, it's, I mean, one number is literally double the other number. So if you're just kind of thinking about it clinically, it's kind of like, whew, that's. Well, and it's because we're talking about endurance, right? Like there's just such a range. So this was on Twitter. I think we got this, but it was sort of a follow-up. I'll link to it, but our last Q and a, which is uh, the end of March, 2019 uh, was about some of this carbohydrate and fueling. We talked a bit about that. Um, And so this person asked, why is there such a range? And I said, well, I mean, if you look at the range of endurance events, endurance, like goals, really, right? So I want to finish Leadville in 12 hours. Well, someone else wants to try and set the record at Leadville in six hours. Right. That's six hours of difference. And the intensity difference in that is huge. Also forgetting that the other person could be 240 pounds to your 140. Yeah. And they do say that, like, certainly that's going to change the the work required. Um, But they do say that, like, body size isn't overly correlated. Like, so a small person still may burn 
that same amount or be able to take in that same amount, I should Mm -hmm. say, not the burn that gets confusing, but like what they're going to take in. Um, And I think that's important to remember too, like before we go too far down is that you're not necessarily replacing all of the fuel. And that's the mistake is like, the the amounts we're talking about are not huge in terms of what you're eating. Like 200 calories an hour is not very much, right? Like in the grand slate versus a meal, obviously, right? Uh, And versus what you're burning, right? Like I think some of the even smaller girls at the camps were like 600 kilojoules an hour. So, I mean, they're not replacing that. They're doing that 200, right? So I think that 200, that 240 calories, so that's your 50 to 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour is pretty common. And I always say like, that's sort of the starting spot with the, the athletes when we're out on these camps, I give them a very annoying running total of the, the minimum expectation as far as calorie intake. Um, and again, it's around that, I always call it the two gels an hour, two scoops of mix an hour, or one bar an hour, right? Like a cliff bar, not that we have any allegiance with that, but they tend to be around that 220, 240 calories. Um, so you, you have that, there's a reason that stuff is packaged in that way. That's sort of the common thinking. Um, but back to goals, like, I think the other thing to remember is that the range is probably zero to a hundred grams in per hour in what humans could potentially have taken in and not vomited and, you know, achieved their goals somewhere between those two endpoints. Right. It's true. Yeah. For like a 5k zero would be right. And so we'll put this, my sports science did a nice infographic that sort of lays this out based on the duration, um, of the event. So you have something that's like a, a even shorter endurance event. So something like a 800 meter run could be, that's like a middle distance, but still you might have a fueling strategy. And so you might not have anything for that. A cyclocross race is 60 minutes. Generally people don't have any fuel during the cyclocross race. You could argue though, that they take in often something at the line of the race. Um, so they might take in a hundred calorie gel at the line, which then is that part of the race. That's you know, if it's taken in 30 seconds or five minutes rather before the race, you know, that's questionably getting digested during the race and used during the race. So that might be where you're seeing 30 grams an hour because they took one gel, right? So that's maybe where you could like take that in. Um, as you get longer, you're thinking your Ironman elite, elite, and I said sort of expert elite level triathlon, Ironman, ultra Ironman. Some of these people are putting out huge work capacity um, and have trained their gut, which I think is what the question was in the last one was about, can you train the gut? Mm -hmm. And so they've prepared themselves and are also having such a high output um, that they can indeed get up to that sort of high end of the range, the 90 grams per hour. But that doesn't mean, the important thing is that that is an extreme for an extreme situation. So again, we, most of us cluster around that cliff bar an hour. Yeah, I mean, especially with triathlon, you're going to have people eating the higher end on the bike because they're not going to be able to eat that much on yes, the run. Yes, exactly. So that's yeah. a huge difference. Um, exactly. Yeah. So they're also like, then you could almost have average over the race again and see how different that is. Yeah, when you add in, no one's taken in anything on the swim. Not much, right? Like the elites, certainly, I would not think are doing... Anyone that's I mean, eating a gel in the middle of the water, like props to you. Well... And I guess, again, you get into, and this is my other point, is the goal of the event, right? Like, and the duration of the event, right? So you have to be very careful, again, that six-hour versus 12-hour Leadville or Dirty Kanza or Ironman wouldn't be six, but it, what are they now? Like eight versus, what is the top you can do? 17? 17. So those are 
different events, right? And and so that's where you get into, well, should I have solid foods or liquid foods? Well, all the elites have liquids. Well, the elites are going really hard relatively, right? Like in, and so the fuel source is different. Mm-hmm. The fuel needs are different, right? So you get into that situation where, again, the elite triathlete is consuming more because of the output and also the training they've put into the gut. Um, whereas the other person is not putting out as much and has more time to take it in, right? So they, A, might do more solids and B, just are out for way longer. So again, the, the needs are, are, are different, right? They have more time to take it in as well. Um, well, I had another point. Oh, the goal of the event. So a lot of people, especially in these keto days we're living in, they're like, oh, well, I don't need that. Certainly you do not need to have anything. You can survive Iron Man not eating. Okay, we'd like to not recommend that to anyone listening. But the general consensus is, and I'll link, there's a great Alex Hutchison article about do sports drinks work and sort of highlight some of the recent research on that and back and forth and problems with the studies and the, what the studies are showing. And it, it's fairly clear that like consuming food uh, and carbohydrates specifically is going to increase your performance. Um, there's a variety of mechanisms f- ranging from the taste to the actual like maintenance of um, glucose in your system. So if you're just out on an hour training ride, you don't necessarily have to have anything. If you're, you know, again, out on a three hour endurance ride and you're not that concerned about comparing to your friends or setting your personal best wattage time, then, you know, you certainly could make an argument for reducing the amount of carbohydrate or not doing it. But if you're a game playing, practicing your hydrate, your nutrition strategy for some of these big races, and then really want to push your limits at these races, then that's, again, that's sort of the understanding is that minimum expectation of the, the 60 grams an hour, 50 grams an hour, and then building from there as, as really as much as you can with, with, not having GI issues. Perfect. All right. I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Um, As always, reviews on iTunes are super awesome. We'd love more questions. You can hit us up over at consummateathlete.com or find us on the Twitter or Instagram at Molly J. Herford and at Peter Glassford. Um, And of course, as we said in the beginning, pre-orders of Shred Girls would be super appreciated. Um, We don't really do a lot of advertising or, you know, ask a lot of the audience on this podcast. So that is my my one big ask. Um, Spread the word, share with other, you know, parents of young women in your life. That would be amazing and very much appreciated. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out WideAnglePodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content, and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind-the-scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week... Uh, Do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. Takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. And it really helps us out. 
Thanks so much, and we will see you next week.